What's up, OUXers? This conversation with Dan Mall is bonkers. So Dan Mall is one of the leading experts in design systems. He's the co-founder and creative director at Superfriendly, which is a design collaborative that brings design system guidance and leadership and execution to companies like Capital One and Girl Scouts and Harvard and Carnegie Mellon and so many more. He is the creator of a new design system course, which will, of course, be linked to in the show notes. The course is not out yet, but um, check out that link to sign up for updates so you can be the first to know about it. I definitely want to be the first to know about it. I will be taking this course for sure. In this conversation, Dan and I discuss personality traits that make a system designer and how to start a design system project the right way. And we debate some pros and cons on flexible cards, I'm using air quotes right now, which can lead to what I call masked objects. We also come up with a plan for how OUXers can fill a very needed gap in the design system world, actually putting components in context and rooting them in real world valuable objects that the users and the business care about. Okay, let's roll the intro and get right into it. Welcome to the Object Oriented UX Podcast, a podcast about tackling complexity head on, gracefully organizing massive amounts of information, facilitating cross functional collaboration like a boss, iterating strategically, and designing scalable, future proof, and of course, naturally intuitive object oriented user experiences. An OUXer is a powerful blend of information architect, business analyst, and UX strategist. If this sounds like you or what you aspire to, you are so in the right place. I'm Sophia Prater, user experience designer and chief evangelist for Object Orient UX. I've taught OUX to companies big and small and to thousands of individual designers like you, and I am honored to be your host. Dan, welcome to the Object Oriented UX podcast. It is amazing to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to do it. All right. So um, I'm ready to go ahead and jump into it. I got my questions ready. Are you ready? Sweet. Let's All right. Let's do it. So the first thing that I want to ask you about, um, of course, I want you to kind of go back for us a little bit. But what I'm really interested in hearing about is how, how did you get so interested in design systems? Like what was it about design systems that led you to this and led you to become one of the leading experts in design systems? I mean, I don't know about that last part, but I can tell you why Why uh, I'm interested in it, why my company Super Friendly does it. Um, I think for a lot of designers that have been designing for a while, I think the idea of design systems is one that isn't necessarily named, but it's kind of ingrained in the practice. So like, you know, the idea of design systems isn't new, you know, from, from the 1940s graphic design, you know, like it, the idea of systems in design had been a, an idea that had existed, which is like, if we have a set of things, we can make more things if that set is really good, right? So like, that's the initial premise of design systems. And so only in digital, we've started to call it that over the last, I don't know, five or 10 years, you know, something like that. But I think that designers have been doing that a lot for a long time without the name. And so I mean, that, even, that's in, even industrial design as well. I mean, yeah, if you absolutely. think about interchangeable parts... Right. Absolutely. Architecture, you know, like all the fields of design, I think, have some some semblance of the same idea. And we've we've named it and it means a specific thing for us now in digital and in UX. But I think the idea has been around, you know, like you said, in, in design for a long time. And so as a designer, I, I grew up doing that stuff. You know, I went I went to design school and, and I learned how to do that, uh, how to do systems, how to work with systems. Uh, so that's one part uh, of that. And then the second part is I've always been interested in process and how people work together and teams and tools and how all those things come together. And then as the idea of design systems have come together in our industry, it's the thing that brings all those things together, right? Because it's not just a tool for designers or a, a tool for engineers or a tool for product managers. It's like, it's for everybody. And, and to use it well, you have to kind of have a new process. You have to use it in a different way than you've used previous tools. So it's kind of a good culmina culmination for me of all of the things that I enjoy doing. And I was like, oh yeah, it has a name now. And so I like doing that thing. So um, to psychoanalyze yourself a little bit, what, <laughs> what do you think is like the, perso the personality trait that makes you that type of um, process person that likes to design, 
like it's almost the design of the design process. Um, and also that kind of bringing people together because um, I think we probably agree on this, um, which a lot of people that are at the forefront of design systems are saying is this is not sexy work. This is, it's, it's kind of, it's supposed to be boring. The more boring your design system, the better. And that's really exciting. Um, little nod to Josh Clark there. Um, but so what is it about your personality in particular that like that drew you to this? All right. So I, I like, I like the psychoanalyzation part. So if we want to go deep on that, I'm a, my Myers-Briggs is an INFJ or sorry, INTJ, excuse me, my wife's my INFJ. Uh, I don't know my Enneagram, but like I'm, I'm big into that, uh, that stuff. Cause I think it helps to understand people. So the thing about INTJ is we like to understand how things work and why they work the way that they do. So for me, and, and this is a, similar to design systems, I've learned a new term recently that again, it's been around for a while, but it's starting to come back into popularity, which is the idea of critical theory, which is the idea that, that we, we analyze the way things work and how they've been created in order to understand them better. And in order to analyze and, and assess, like, is it good where we are? Like, how did it come to be this way? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? And so I think I've always been interested in, in that idea. And, you know, even from when I was a, a young designer, a new designer, I remember wanting to dig into the statements of work that we would have at, at the agency, you know, the first agency where I was an intern, I would ask my bosses, like, can I see the statement of work? Because because I know that I have a brief in design or I know what the client wants, wants us to do, but I kind of want to see what they agreed to initially because I want to see if that's changed. And so like I've always kind of moved all the way up the chain to be like, but how did it get this way? And I think, again, same thing, the, the idea of design systems and the idea of systems in general is about like, how did it get this way? Um, because if, if there was a flaw in that, there's a flaw in our system, maybe we can correct that, or maybe we need a new system. And so um, my personality type, my INTJ type kind of looks at like, well, how did it get to be this way so that I know how to use it well? So I am ENTJ. So, and that, so INTJ is um, oh, introverted. Gosh, what is the N? Uh, intuitive intuitive um thinking and judging um so yeah i am i guess i'm more i guess more extroverted and you're more introverted um but i am also like really i I think i'm like 60 percent. i'm kind of on the line there where i can like go and be in front of people but then i want to crawl into a hole and do stuff by myself (laughs) um but it's funny I, i like how you were saying how you kind of want it to go up the food chain so i i have a client right now and um what I'm doing for them is, of course, I'm doing object oriented UX. Um, I'm teaching object oriented UX, but um, so it is a large Canadian telecom company. And um, one of the things that I'm doing for them is I'm getting a document. I have got a 67 page PDF from a large international consulting firm. Um, one of, <laughs> guess one of the three. Um, and my job right now is to reverse engineer this PDF, this like vision document. And of course there's some like links to envision prototypes and I'm just breaking it open to try to figure out what are the objects, what are the relationships between the objects? What are people trying to do to these objects and really just distill it down. And it is like the most fun puzzle. It's like, I'm, I'm reconnecting with that. Uh, Cause I've been doing so much teaching recently I haven't been doing as much client work but that like going up the food chain and seeing how did we get to where we are um is also really interesting for me so yeah yeah so I'm seeing some interesting parallels between because I think that there's so much in common with design systems and OOUX I mean really we're trying to figure out um you know what are the what are these um indivisible pieces and then how do you put these individual indivisible pieces together in a way that makes sense and is really efficient and you can have the least of the least effective dose of moving parts. <laughs> so, yeah, it is, totally, totally. so it is less likely to break. Um, okay. So you, so super friendly does a ton of helping companies implement design systems. Um, but recently I've been, you know, seeing you on Twitter and you're coming out with some interesting courses, I think in some like products or some toolkits to help designers learn how to do this sort of in the super friendly best practices way um, of making design systems. So can you tell us a little bit about what you have cooking right now? And then I got some follow-up questions about that. 
Yeah, cool. So uh, one of the things that we see a lot with our clients is just even on a basic level, I think that generally they understand and the industry understands like what a design system is, but actually at a tactical level and a tangible level, there's a lot of discrepancy in that. So, you know, one of the things that, that we're going to release soon, we're releasing this big course, uh, you know, design systems with super friends, working on that now. And one of the first chapters in that is like what actually is a design system? And so that's the thing that we end up teaching to our clients a lot. And because I think in general, they get it like, yeah, yeah, it's like a kit of things that we use to make other things and it enables us and empowers us. I'm like, well, yeah, that's not false. That's, that's true. But then when we get down to it and we, and we really distinguish like, well, is a UI kit a design system? And is a component library a design system? And what about like package management? And like, so like, how does that work within our organization? And I think that's the thing that where people go like, I uh, don't know actually. And even designers and engineers are like, well, I, I kind of know like a third of it. I know I know the, my part of it, the design part of it, but I actually don't know how that ties to our engineering team. So we end up doing a lot of education for like, let's talk about how all of this stuff works together. And we actually get a lot of clients who hire us to say like, could you just kind of map out how this stuff works? Like that's the project that they want to do. Could you just draw us a map of like how this thing interacts with all the other things that we have? And actually what's, what's in this thing? Like what is in a design, is a UI, a UI kit part of a design system? So we get a lot of those kinds of questions, like just nuts and bolts stuff. And it's, it's weird because even though it's nuts and bolts stuff, it's not 101, it's, you know, 201 or 301. It's like, it's still an intermediate level understanding of that. So we want to try to fill in the gaps of that intermediate level of, of understanding. Cause I think that our industry is getting a good basic understanding of design systems already. And there are a handful of companies that are leading the way in terms of showing their design system and having maturity around that, like, you know, Atlassian and Salesforce and Google and, you know, and companies like that. But I think there are lots of different companies, enterprises in general that are just like, we need a design system. Right. And then, and for them, and for them, that means like, yeah, we need like really great UI kits and component libraries and part of what we were trying to say to them is like, those are good things. You're missing a big chunk of that too. So here's what it is. Here's why it's useful. Here's why you need it. Here's how you sustain it. Here's the process that you use. Here are the tools that you need. Here's the mindset shifts that you need to make. Here's the organizational culture things that you need to change. So all of those things that are kind of wrapped up in design systems. Um, I think that there's a lot of general, like good general education about it. And actually not a lot of, of detailed education about it. And so there are only a handful of people and companies that are doing a good job at that, I think. And so, you know, we, we hope to at least add to the, to the education resource out, out there. So is this, so basically you're, okay. So what I'm hearing and what I think sort of uh, aligns to, to what I'm doing. So I'm asking some business model questions for totally selfish reasons um, because I'm in a little bit of the same boat right now where I have been practicing and delivering um, object-oriented UX to, to companies and now I'm trying to train, I'm trying to train the designers because basically I'm getting tired of saying the same things over and over again. And I want to, to, you know, elevate to, I'm doing the, um, the even more complex work. So, um, and, and the thing about, I think design systems and object oriented UX is it really is a fractal. So the deeper you go into it, the more rabbit holes you find that you can go sure. down so there's really it's like kind of this endless um endless journey you can think of which is a I think a really exciting thing um did anybody ever say to you like you're giving away too much um oh and so you, you have a you do have a course that's coming out right so nuts and bolts you got a course yep. that's coming out um, and then some kind of kits as well, right? Yep, totally. Okay, yep. Okay, so cool. yeah, all and because we, we released a lot of the things around design systems, and you know, so to your question about like, does anybody say you're releasing too much? I mean, sure, but I, I've never been uncomfortable with that idea. You know, I, I feel like I am where I am in the industry and in my career because other people did that for me. So like, who am I to stop doing that? And then the other side of that is like, I kind of feel like knowledge is a cup, right? That like. You, you, your cup gets filled and then you're full. And I think that you have to empty your cup in order to make room for more knowledge. So I'm like, all right, well, my cup feels full sometimes. So I'm like, well, how do I share all the stuff that I know that I've learned? Well, I have to empty that somewhere. I might as well empty that into somebody else's cup, hopefully. So, that, and then that way, like their cup gets full, my cup gets empty because I want it to be empty just so that I can learn more things. And then hopefully they empty their cup into, you know, into somebody else's cup. So like, that's kind of the way that I, I think about that is like, you know, and the third facet of that is like you said, it's like an endless rabbit hole. So, you know, one of the things that, that I learned early on from where, from my upbringing in design was like, when you end up saying 
the same thing over and over to clients or friends or people you're mentoring, like you write a blog post, right? So like, because then you can just send them a link and you don't have to keep doing it. And so right now, you know, I do a lot of teaching and workshops like privately and publicly with clients, but that's limited. That's like, mm-hmm. well, I can only teach 25 people at a time or hundred people at a time or however many people are in that client meeting or however many projects we have going on. That's a finite amount. And if I were to write a blog post about all this, I mean, it would be a book, it would be 60,000 words, and that wouldn't even scratch the surface. So rather than making a blog post, I'm like, well, maybe we can make a course or a video or because we can pack more information into that, you know, and so it, it is more thorough. But like you said, there's a lot of stuff to cover. And, you know, and a blog post isn't going to cover it. A, a 10 part series of, of a blog post isn't going to cover it. You know, a 10 part uh, video workshop, which is what our course is going to be, is still not going to cover it, you know? And so there is really just an endless amount of material. And I feel like even by preparing that material, I'm learning a lot more about it just in the act of preparing for it. Oh, I love that. I mean, the idea of knowledge, I've never heard that analogy of knowledge is a cup that you got to empty it to make room for more stuff. That's exactly how I feel. So I, I, I love that visualization. Um, do you, are you going to kind of with your net, your next clients, are you going to send them your course and say, Hey, we're going to have a lot more productive session. If you guys go ahead and just take this course and then we can hit the ground running and be doing the more advanced work. Uh, yes. And I think a, a lot of times, so there's, it's twofold. And so you asked about business model stuff. So I'm happy to kind of say like, here's our, here's our strategy around that. You know, we turn away a lot of clients because they don't have the budget for us to work with them. You know, so I think that like, we try not to do that as much as we can. I think our business model allows it a little bit more into how we bring together teams ad hoc than maybe other agencies do, but there's still, sometimes there's a client that's like, well, we want all this knowledge And we, but, you know, but we can't pay hundreds of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars or whatever it would take for us to be able to do that well for them. You know, and sometimes they come in and they say like, well, we have 7,500 bucks and we're like, well, we can't provide a, a, a good service for that, you know, for lots of different reasons, but like. $7,500, like maybe we could send them a course that's $2,500 to sign up Mm -hmm. for like, and maybe that will do the trick. And so we don't have a good option for those clients right now. And part of it is like, well, how can we provide a better option for them rather than like, you know, sorry, good luck to you. You know, like that's, that's what we've got so far. So instead of resorting to that, instead, if we could go to them and say, you know, you know, not as part of our work, but actually sometimes as a replacement for our work, you know, like, and, and, and we do a lot of talking clients out of hiring us sometimes when we don't think it's a good fit. When we say like, you know, we think it would be a waste of your money to spend that amount of money with us right now on this thing. And so it acts as a thing where we, where we, what we would be able to say to a client, well, don't spend, you know, $15,000 on us instead spend 2,500 bucks on our course. That would be a much better way to do it. And then hire us for a smaller consulting engagement after that, if you want to, that would be actually a better use of your money and our time, you know, and so because our because our, our resources are finite, you know, our, our effort is finite. We want to make sure that we're using that to the best of our ability too, and, and stewarding that well. So you know, it acts as another option to give to clients rather than just like shooing them away or like referring them to someone that we're not sure is going to do a good job. Maybe we could have kind of another price point for our clients to engage with us just in a different fashion. So yeah, exactly. And and so to kind of um pull this all together. And the reason I'm digging into this before we kind of pivot and get into some of the really geeky design system stuff um, is something that I say all the time is the riches are in the niches. Um, Even though I like saying niche, it doesn't rhyme with riches. So the riches are in the niches. And I think people, um, they get from all the mentoring I do, people get a little bit nervous with just deciding like, this is a thing that I'm really interested in. And I'm just going to go all the way heads down with this um, because they feel like it's finite. And they feel like they'll hit a wall and the, and the, this idea that that's totally not true. You can go, you can dive into that. You can fill up that cup of knowledge and then maybe your model shifts a little bit to passing it forward so that then you can go further down those rabbit holes. So anybody that's listening, that's thinking like, I'm really interested in this like really obscure thing. I would, and and Dan's nodding right now. (laughs) I would encourage you, we would both encourage you to go down that path and watch that like thing that you feel like is really obscure widen and widen into this like big, beautiful world of things that you can explore and learn and then pass on to other people. I mean, I know it's not uh, the exact pronunciation of it, but I'm surprised that you didn't go with the riches are in the niches because it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of there. It's kind of close. Isn't that what I said? The riches are in the niches? I thought you said the ditches. No. 
Oh. The riches. Yeah. The, I think the riches okay. are in the riches. <laughs> all right all right we're on the same thing. the rabbit hole ditches that you go down <laughs> right, the, right. The, the, yes the deep deep nichey nichey ditches got it, um, got it no we're on the same wavelength excellent the niches <laughs> yes um both. okay so design systems one thing that i have seen you shake your head at um do a little smh action is um this idea of people going in to start a design system and they're like, okay, we're going to do this. We have a design system project and let's go and let's start cranking out a bunch of components. Start with our drop. We, got, we know we're going to need a drop down and we're going to need some radio buttons and we're going to need some, some ticky boxes. And, and this seems like a totally natural place to start. We got to, you know, build out all the pieces and we know we, we might need these. So let's just start, you know, let's just start getting as many components out as possible. Why do you think that that is not the, the best place to start a design system? Um, I think because it's counterintuitive and, and really it's, it's an emergent lesson that, I, that I've learned. Um, it's not that like, because when you describe it like that, it seems natural. It seems like, well, yeah, that seems like a good place to start. And what we found is that that often leads to the same place. And so I'll talk about what that same place is. What teams tend to do is what you just described. It's like, we need a more standardized set of things. And if we have some standards around that, then we can, we can create more things. We're, in, we're empowered more. We're enabled more, which is a, a good thought. I think a good inclination. And so, like you said, then teams go like, all right, well, let's start to create that standard set of things. So let's make some, you know, let, let's make some guesses. And I think we might need some headers. I think we might need some footers, probably some cards, probably some tape, like all the, you know, all the usual stuff. And then they go, well, we've got it. Now everybody should use it, right? Like, and so they send some links around internally and they go, oh, we built this thing. Can you all use it? And no one actually does. And so the, the thing that we often see is almost every company that we work with has like a design system graveyard, right? They have like this, like this place that's like, oh yeah. I mean, we tried that like six months ago and then uh, we didn't really get traction. We're not really sure why. And, and I can tell you after seeing this now, like I, I think literally hundreds of times, um, I can tell you why this is and why that, and this is, this comes from interviews. This comes from talking to people who have made these things and not seen them get used and, and talking to people who are supposed to be able to use them and go, and then like asking them, like, why didn't you use that thing? Cause that, that team made it. It seemed pretty good. And every time the answer is, well, it didn't really fit though. We couldn't, re it, it wasn't exactly what we needed. And so for every team, they look at it and they go, well, it's close but it's not exactly what I need. So I'm still gonna have to do work. And the, the premise of a design system or even a component library UI kit is it'll save you time, right? That's one of the big promises of a design system. So when, when teams look at that and they go, is that gonna save me time? And their answer is no. Well, obviously then they're not gonna use it. And so that's why instead what we recommend is this idea of piloting, right? The idea that like, you don't start with the, the kit, you know, the, the, part, the kit of parts and then make a product you start with a product and then you extract the kit of parts. So it's an output. A design system is an output of good product design. It's not an input into it. And that's the thing that we tend to teach teams is like, you're doing it backwards, even though it's intuitive to do it that way, you're doing it the wrong way. Start with the product. And then after you're done the product, then start to go, well, what of the things that we made can other teams use? And the reason that that is helpful is because when you start with the kit, you have no idea whether or not it's useful in any product. At, at that point, it's useful in zero products so far. Mm -hmm. It has potential for lots of products, but, the, but the, the actual use of it is zero. If you do it the other way around, if you start with a product and then you extract the parts, you know that out of the gate, that the, the parts are useful in one product at least, which is better than zero. It's useful in the product that you took it out of. So you know that it works for at least one product. And that's a, that's a significantly better starting point than knowing that it's useful for zero product. It, like, it, and it seems like such a small difference, but it's a world of difference knowing that like this worked in one product. So it could probably work in a bunch more. And that is compelling to other teams to go like, oh yeah, we see how it worked on our internet. So yeah, we could use that actually on our, you know, HR platform or, you know, whatever it is that, that you're making. So I think that reversing that order tends to unlock teams to go like, oh yeah, I guess that makes more sense. And it's a little bit counterintuitive, but starting abstractly is very, very difficult. That's a, that's a tough starting point for a lot of teams. So what about companies that already have a product? 
even better, right? Because then you don't have to like, so this is what we recommend to, to our clients, which most of our clients are companies that already have not just one product, but lots of products. Right. They have their flagship website. They have maybe some native mobile apps. They've got some internal apps that only they use. They've got some customer facing stuff. So what we tell them to do is, um, you know, Brad Frost has a good article about this, which is called the interface inventory, which, you know, which is like, you just kind of inventory all the stuff that you've got and what most teams tend to use that for. And it's a little bit of a, you know, Brad doesn't go in depth in his article about this, but what most teams use it for is they use it as just kind of a visual inventory where they go like, oh, let's, you know, let's see what kind of buttons we have currently. And then what they do with that next is they go, okay, and now we're going to make the one button to rule them all. Now that we understand how many buttons we have. And it's like, no, no, no don't do that actually take the best button from what you already have. You don't need to make a whole new one, right? It's like, there's this uh, great X, XKCD, you know, comic strip. Yeah. That's yeah. like, you know, there are 14, you know, 14 standards that we, emerging standards that we have. And then, you know, after some work, there are now 15 emerging standards that we have because, because everyone wants to add to that. Everybody goes like, well, let me make one more. And then, and now there's just more, there's just another one of those things. So instead of making another button to add to the mix, find the best one, right? Find the one that's like coded the best or find the one that like looks awesome. Find the ones that, you know, your stakeholders are like, that is an amazing button. And like button's probably a bad example here, but you know, like card pattern or something like that. Find the one that's sturdiest, find the one that is the most performant, find the one that's the most accessible and build your system off of all the good stuff you already have, right? And, and that way there's even better, like, and I'm glad that you asked about the psychoanalyzing earlier, because I think there's a lot of psychological factors that go into this. If you do it that way, then you, when you, when teams look at the design system, they go, Hey, there's our button in there. Hey, that's the card pattern that we invented. And they see themselves in the product. And so that's one of the biggest hurdles of a design system is people seeing themselves in it and teams seeing themselves in it and going like, can we use that? So if they already are looking at it and seeing something that they've made, that just raises the tendency for them to go like, oh, the system is already using something that we've made. There's probably a bunch more other stuff that we could use in there. So again, it's this like, it's, it, it's counterintuitive, but you know, you don't like design system teams, I think feel like they have to be the ones to be the creators of the standards. And that's not necessarily true. You can be the collectors of the standards too, yeah. at least as a starting point. And then you can create more and, and augment that afterwards. But I've seen successful design teams that are just collectors. Like all their job is, it's a custodial role, right? It's like one where they're just cleaning up after everybody. They're letting the product teams do a bunch of cool, innovative work. And then they're just going in after them and going like, we'll take this and this thing and this thing and this piece and we'll pluck, we'll pluck those things out and put it in our design system. So they're not actually doing any creation. They're just doing some harvesting, right? They're just like the seeds are planted by the product teams. And then the, the design system team is, is harvesting, you know, what, what has bloomed from those seeds. So other than um, custodian, maybe, maybe curator <laughs> might sound a little, Absolutely. A little fancy. Yeah. So it's curation, not creation. Um, have you ever done Strength Finder? I have. Yeah. I don't remember my strengths finder results, uh, but yeah, I, I, did I bet you would have. So my number two is input. I bet. And it's like the, it's the, it's the person that likes to take all the things and figure out which little buckets they go in and figure out, okay, we don't want those things. <laughs> nice. So it's, yeah, it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of the, Mar the Marie Kondo personality. I like that. Um, so let's go back. You mentioned like, let's figure out the most robust card. And I have a very, I have very strong feelings about cards, <laughs> very strong feelings. So I used to call these modules. I'm trying to retrain myself to call them cards because they, because of all the e-learning that's happening, people think about modules very differently now. So I used to call them modules. Now I call them cards. Um, but basically the way that I think about a card is it's a representation of a very specific object, a very specific thing. So when you're looking at a card, do you see, do you think that it's a good idea to say like, okay, let's find a good card where like we can make like that can be flexible or do you think that those cards should be like tied to a actual thing in the conceptual model? Um, definitely the second. And I know that, I know that you're keen on this too, um, which is the idea that like, I don't know that we can answer that question universally. I don't know that like, because a card for Nike's products is going to be very different than a card for Google's products. You know, like mm -hmm. they just have to do separate things. Um, and I think that, that that's one of the things that I try to look for and I try to coach for and, and our teams try to coach for when we work with our clients is like, 
let's not worry too much about answering the universal question about like, what is a card generally? Let's talk about what a card is for your company, for your organization, for your set of products. Cause that's a much easier question mm-hmm. to answer. Right. So like what, what generally what I try to do is like, let's give you the easy stuff. Like let's, let's make this easier. Um, and, and maybe it'll be, it'll be better to adopt that way if it's easier for you all to do. So, you know, it's hard for a UX designer or a designer or an engineer or a product manager or somebody to, to go like, what is what should a card do in general? It's like, well, I mean, it depends, right? <laughs> so that's always, that's always the answer that we come to. And we come to that answer because the questions are too general, but if it's more specific, what should a card do at Nike? Oh, well, a card at Nike should show a product and give me a buy button. It's like, oh, great. That's like, you know, everywhere we use a card should have a buy button. And that is a rule that a team can set that is educated, you know, because you can say everywhere we use a card, this is what our customers are looking for. This is the data that we have. This is what our team's experience looks like. So like you can make it exclusive to your company. And I think that's a much better answer. Who cares what other companies are doing? with right. their stuff? Like, Do your own thing. What serves your needs? Ask your customers, ask your team, ask your stakeholders, because you can have answers to that. You don't know what the rest of the world wants. Why, why bother with that question? It's too broad. And so instead, like, you know, like you, like you were saying, tie it to your conceptual model. If you're Facebook, a card has to do something very different than what a card at Airbnb has to do. At Airbnb, it has to help you book a listing probably. Mm-hmm. At, at Facebook, it has to help you maybe connect with somebody. So like those are two very different user experiences that need different user, user interface, different states, different, um, like all sorts of different considerations around that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, so it's hard for me to answer like, and I actually don't try to answer like, what should a card do in general? I'm like, well, where? Right? And, and that becomes a much, much easier, much more scoped question to answer to go like, oh, over here, this is what a card should do. And I think that what an organization typically does, right? And this is why the need, we need design systems is they scope too tightly initially where they go, a card in this product needs to do this. And it's like, oh, cool. Well, what about the other product though? Oh, we didn't think about that. So it was a too narrow of a scope, but then we've pendulum swung the other way, which is like, okay, well, what should a card do forever in, in, through the course of history? It's like, well, wait a minute. Like we don't need to go that broad on it. We just need to go, what does a card need to do at our company? You know, or maybe, maybe, and this is what we find more likely we almost never have a design system that has one card in it. You know, even for an organization, right. we usually have three or four, you know, like a couple of variations mm-hmm. and they're all built on the same foundation. Uh, and, and then they're, they're customizable, you know, in some way, like to the range that that organization needs to be able to customize it. So, you know, very rarely will we say, you know, and we've done this a couple of times, but we don't like it. Sometimes we just say a card is a box and you can put whatever you want in the box. And it's like, well, all right. You know, like at that point, then everything's a card, like a website's a card, right? Like, yeah. which kind of maps up to how lots of the, the newer component libraries, like, you know, react and the frameworks like that, they kind of have that concept in them, which is like, you know, everything is a component, including a page and including a header and including a card, including a footer, all of them are components. So treat them all like that. And I'm like, I don't know how helpful that is. So instead, if we can scope appropriately, you know, we Goldilocks, it. it's not too, not too narrow, not too wide, but within our organization, what are the three or four kind of cards that we might need? Then you get good coverage in a way that you don't have to be too specific or too abstract. So I think I know what a card should always do all the time. Because <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. So I would say it should show the most important information about an object, the most prioritized information that you don't necessarily want the user to be a click away from. And then it should most likely, there should maybe be some calls to action on there that you don't need to go to the detail page. And then, so maybe like one, two, maybe you have a little call to action menu or something like that if you're super fancy, but really it's a representation. It's a business card to say like, hey, do you wanna know more about this thing? So it has its content in its own right. It's also navigation to most likely a detail page. Not all objects would have a detail page because you can fit all the attributes in the card. So you don't need the detail page. Um, but, and then how many cards should a company have? I would argue, well, how many objects do you have? Because something that Dan, that I talk a lot about is something called masked objects. So a masked object is when you have two cards that represent, or one card, I'm sorry, one card that can, that can fit multiple things. It's like flexible. And so it can fit, let's take the Nike example. So it can fit a product. It can also fit a product line. It could fit a product designer because Nike sometimes likes to show all their fancy shoe designers. So it can fit a designer. A person can go in there. A shoe can go in there. An overall product line, which is a group of shoes. And it can all sort of fit in this cart. And the problem with that is us human 
human lizard brain people, when things look the same, we assume it's the same thing. And when it has the same structure, so then we need to, we need to differentiate our things to make sure our conceptual model is like, is rep is, um, is reflected and, um, and reinforced through the design. So people are like, oh, okay, we got designers and this is what designers look like. We got shoes, that's what shoes look like. We got product lines, okay, they look a little bit different. Even, you know, just changing the ratio from like landscape to portrait or something like that. Um, always having people in circles. I love people in circles. We should all put people <laughs> in circles all the time. <laughs> so, um, so what do you think about that? These sort of like, um, and I'm fine with debating a little bit because I think that there's pros and cons because you get efficiency, right? If you say, well, we have this card and it can really it can fit a lot of different types of things um, versus like, no, we need three different cards that are very visually distinct to reinforce that conceptual model. Yep, I buy that. So I'll tell you the the objections that I've seen and, and heard to that. Uh, some some are my own. Some are, some we've seen that we we've seen from teams. There's a there's a narrow sweet spot for the guidance of any component, right? Card or, or whatever it is. On one on one side, designers and engineers, and I'm talking from a, an implementation standpoint. So I'll start there. And from an implementation standpoint. I think designers and engineers want flexibility, right? They want to know, like, if I want to put a drop down inside this card, that I can do that. On the other side of, of that sweet spot is I want rules. Tell me what I'm not allowed to do with this, right? So, like, if a card can fit anything into it, well, then I, like, I don't know how to use it because then I'm basically, I, can I build a whole website inside a card? How big can a card be? Is, is there a, a minimum width and a maximum width to it? Can it take up the whole screen? Is a card a header? Like, is a header a card? So, like, we need we need some rules. We need some some boundaries and some guidelines on it. Now, na navigating those two things together is hard. <laughs> it's, it's hard for teams, like, because designers are like, just tell me, like, can I put a drop down in a card or yes or no? And it's tricky because if the answer is no, then they go, well, where do I put the drop down? And if you don't have an answer for that second follow up question, then they go, well, I can't use this design system because you don't have an answer for the problems that I'm trying to solve in the ways that I'm trying to solve them. This is supposed to enable me and yet it's constraining me, right? And then the other way around is like, oh, you can put whatever you want in there. Well, I mean, so then for that, I'm just gonna design my own stuff. I'm just gonna build my own stuff because if I can put whatever I want in it, I don't know how I'm supposed to use this. And so I think there's this sweet spot right in the middle that's like, here's exactly what you can do with a card and no more than that, right? Here are the four use cases that we're gonna support and then and then no more than that. And I think that, var that really varies from from company to company. Like, I think that generally your, your guidelines are good, um, but I think that they, that they don't work in, and I wouldn't say edge cases, but there's a bunch of cases where it's like, well, I still don't know what to do here. And I think that's what a good design system does is it lets me know like, what should I do here? Because part of the time-saving thing of, of a design system is not just that it gives me something that I can use, it actually reduces my decision-making time, which is one of the hardest things for designers to do. Like that's a, that's a designer's primary job is to design things. And it's hard because how many colors do I have to decide from 16 million? I have to pick one <laughs> to make this button or, or a gradient. So a handful of those, like there's 16 million colors. How do I pick? And that's our job. Our job as designers is to pick, is to go, we'll use these two out of 16 million, these two, these two hex, hex codes. And so part of the job I think of a design system is to reduce my decision-making need, right? To go like, I just need to know what I can do with this. These four things, cool. That supports what I need to do. Excellent. That's great. So, like, you know, as an example, we worked with an airline uh, um, last year, uh, and cards were, were a big thing. It was like, well, I need to put a drop. And you know, the example that I gave, I need to put two buttons in this card. And it's like, uh oh, well, the <laughs> like, first of all, why? You know, second of all, is it, and and that has its own fork. Like, is there a good answer or is it a bad answer, right? And, so, and and then on top of that, okay, let's assume it's a good answer. Well, the card that we've designed doesn't fit two buttons. Like, literally, the, in any viewport, the, the buttons stack, and then they look weird, and then the, the, it changes how people read it, and then they perform the wrong action. So, like, so all of those things, those are all the decisions that are encompassed in a simple card pattern, right? Or a simple card component, excuse me. Like that, that that card has to be able to accommodate. Well, there are two actions that I need to take here. But, and, and the problem is it, the typical card mostly supports one action, or at least the card that we designed initially supports one action. You know, like buy this shoe or add this thing to cart or, you know, like check, oh, you know, view more or whatever, you know, whatever it is. 
And yet there were lots of scenarios where there's actually three actions that we need to support. And one is definitely primary, but we do have two secondary actions that need to be there and need to be present. And it makes a designer think like, so does that mean I can't use a card? But, I, but the card is actually a good component. It's a good UX pattern for a lot of this information that I'm trying to convey. But this one, this one exception is, is breaking my, my mental model of this. So now what do I do? And if the design system doesn't have a good answer, then the designer goes, well, I guess I have to invent it. If it's not there, I guess I have to invent it, which is actually a good process. Like that's what I think a design system should do is you should look at it and you go, is my thing in there? No. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll go and invent the thing. That's what it's supposed to do. But the design system should, there's probably some stuff. And again, this is different from organization to organization. There's probably some stuff that your design system probably should have in it. You know, like if you're a commerce, an e-commerce company, your design system probably should have some ways to do commerce built into it. If you don't, yeah. it seems like you're missing something in your objects, right? It seems like there's some objects missing, you know, that really should be part of that. Now, should your, if you're an e-commerce company, should your design system support, you know, the ability to chat with someone else? I don't know, like maybe not. And maybe that's a stance your design system takes is like, if you want to do something like that, go for it. Like that's a thing that we don't support right now. And I think that's an okay answer for a design system and a design system team to have is to go, here is the stuff that we support and we support that really well. And then here's some stuff that, that we know that you're going to need to do, but you have free reign to do all that stuff because that's not within our purview. And I think that balance is a good balance. And that's that sweet spot between rigidity and flexibility. And, and that's just true with so many things with like everything in the world, really, <laughs> like, you know, your totally. daily routine should have a certain amount, that sweet spot of rigidity and flexibility. Um, the, you know, COVID guidelines, a little bit of flexibility, you know, <laughs> but some rigidity and, make, and being clear, like everything really, I mean, any set of rules in the world um, needs to hit that sweet spot between rigidity and flexibility for different situations. Um, so one thing that I will, um, I guess I'll not push back on, but like ask you about. So in- I don't mind pushback by the way either. Okay. So yeah, if so, you can the idea of having a card and saying, oh, for this scenario, we need an extra call to action. So what I would have thought of is, or what I would have hoped for is that that card is very specific to an object. That card is like, this is the article card. This is the, the designer card, the Nike designer card. This is the product card and this is the product line card. So we're designing a new site for Nike and we have the objects or product, product line, designer and um, what did I just say? Article, like blog post or something. And they all have relationships between them. So a designer can write an article. A designer can also design a shoe. Um, a shoe is part of a product line. Um, a article could be about a product line or an article could be also be about a designer as well um, or written by a designer. So there's all these relationships between to, to build our conceptual model between these real world objects of value, the things that people are actually coming for because like I say all the time nobody's coming for your card <laughs> nobody no. cares about your card nobody's coming for your navigation nobody's coming for your calendar picker they're coming for the things and our design system packages those things in a really consistent beautiful way so I would have said okay product card here's our product card and we've already done an inventory of what all our calls to action are for a product so we sort of know what people would do to those products so when we design that card and we prioritized, we collaboratively prioritize all those call to actions. We know we know we don't buy on there and we know what we want favorite on there and maybe compare. Maybe if the module or the, sorry, the card is big enough. If we have one of our like ch big chunky cards, we can do a little bit of extra stuff and we can have compare on there. Um, so that's what I would have thought is that you, that a designer shouldn't be in a scenario where they're like, I want to use this card, but for this particular thing, I need a separate call to action. Like we've already decided before we got into design. Yep. So if I went and said that to one of your clients <laughs> that is in the weeds with this, what would the, what would the pushback be on that? Like, what, what would somebody say? I don't think you get pushback at all. I think people would say like, amen. Yes. Yes. We should have that. Mm -hmm. And the thing about humans is that we suck at predicting things. Yeah. Right. So like, and, and if we think about design systems as, these are a set of predictions that we have been 100% accurate on, then we lose, <laughs> you know, then, then they don't work because 
because that, and that's how teams, and that's why it's so dangerous to go, to go from the, and not even dangerous. It's that's why it's so misleading to go from, well, if we make the right predictions now, then everyone will be served really well later because what designers always find is, you know, I, like I can speak personally on this and I can speak for the teams that we work with. It's like, there's always some scenario that you didn't take into account. And, and that's where, that's, that's where the decision-making comes in. Like that's where the designer suddenly has to decide, Oh, what do I do here? We didn't anticipate this. We didn't predict this properly. So like, yeah, for 90% of the scenarios that card works, but I'm in the 10% of the scenarios where it actually doesn't work. What do I do now? And they look for answers to that question. Like, what do I do? And they ask their boss and they look in the system and they reference the wiki and they go, you know, and what designers are used to seeing, I think is, oh, the answer is nowhere. And so I have to invent it. And a lot of designers, I think myself included have, have gone, well, that's just my job then. My job is to assume that the answer is not going to come from anywhere but me. And that's why we get the sprawl that we get. <laughs> that's why we get at, at organizations, people then over, you know, they over index on that. And designers go, let me assume that it, the, the solution is not anywhere. And let me assume that I have to invent it. And then we find two designers from the different sides of the organization inventing kind of the same thing, but not exactly the same, you know? And then we go, well, I mean, why is that one purple? And this one's dark blue. It's like, you know, because you invented the same thing. And if you were talking more and if you were communicating more and collaborating more, and there was a shared place that was part of your workflow, you know, that's why design systems are emergent is because they're supposed to connect people. And, you know, and that's the thing that like, that, that I've been talking a lot about, about lately in, in a lot of my workshops and my talks is like, and this comes from, you know, it's not my idea. This comes from this book, um, Thinking in Systems by Donna Meadows, that systems are not about the pieces. Systems are about the connections between the pieces. Like that's the most important part about them. It's not about like how good the card is. It's, it's about how the card relates to the dropdown. Like that's more important. Because then if you know how the card relates to the dropdown, then you understand, oh, I can't put that in here or, oh, I can't put that in here or, oh, I need to invent another thing that needs to connect to these in a different way. And, and I think all those connections are the most important things, but we don't talk about those as much. I think that's fine. I think we're, we're in early days you know, of this stuff, but I think eventually we have to talk more about like, how do these pieces connect? And also, the, you know, and those pieces, not just being the actual design and coded, com coded components in a pattern library, component library, or a UI kit, but how do I, as a designer, connect to another designer in the organization that's doing something separate? How do I, as a designer, connect to an engineer that's doing, that has a different job than I do? How do we make those connections? And like a design system in, on paper is a great way to do that. Teams don't know how to use it that way yet. Right. They don't know how they don't know how to use it that way. And, and you know, that's not to say that, that I or my teams know how to do it. We're figuring out that stuff together. I think that's the exciting part about it is we're figuring out that like, oh, it's not just a kid of things. You know, it's like it's actually about how you make connections between things. And that's the thing that moves our, our organization forward and drives customer value and, you know, and does all of that stuff. And so I think that's the part that we miss still. That's the part that we're not quite up to there yet as an industry is thinking about how all of those pieces connect to each other. So I think of, so there's so many parallels here because the, so the process I teach, I call ORCA. So it stands for objects, relationships, calls to action and attributes. So what are the objects? What are the relationships between the objects? What are the things that users want to do to those objects, depending on what kind of role they have? Um, and what are the attributes? What is the structure of each object? And so relationships are so important because um, I've been rereading for the third time Andrew Hinton's Understanding Context book. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, it, it deserves to be read three times. Um, <laughs> so it, you know, he's talking all about context, of course. And for an object to really understand a thing, I think this is Richard Saul Warman, um, that to understand a thing, you have to understand it in context of other things. You have to, it's basically the definition of the thing is in relationship to other things. Um, so going back to our Nike example, what is a designer? Well, I'm gonna define a designer by how it like, oh, a designer designs shoes and writes articles. That's what a designer means within this context. A designer in another system is gonna mean something completely different. Um, a shoe in another system is going to mean something very different, right? A shoe on Etsy versus a shoe on uh, on Nike um, versus a shoe in uh, on MoMA, right? That's going to be something very different. 
So, um, so figuring out those relationships is something that we, we, you know, figure out the objects and then we jump straight into like, okay, we start building entity relationship diagrams basically. So from a design system standpoint and figuring out how, okay, all the pieces that are going to represent those objects that are going to package up those objects and make sure that they're really clear to a user. So a user's like, okay, here's the things in my system. I understand, I understand the relationships between these things. So now I can get stuff done because I understand the things. How do you start? Like, where are you right now? You say you're just kind of getting there and you said we need to talk more about it. So let's talk more about it. Um, in the time that we have left here, like, how do you start? figuring out and also documenting the relationships between, between these components. Uh, I love all that stuff that you just said. And I, I, I hadn't known of those books. So those are definitely going to, I'm going to be on my reading list because it explains so much about, like, I've never heard it put that way. And it explains so much about where design systems fail, which is that kind of by design, a design system removes context. Like the components in a design system are removed from context. They're abstracted from context. When we see them out of context and then we're expected to know how to use them in context. Well, how, like, how do we do that though? Because right, I see a card and it's on the card page and it's got documentation about the card. And I'm like, cool, like it's so abstract that I don't know what to do with it. And so one of the things that I've been kind of whining about and, and complaining about and muttering to myself about, um, that actually I, just, I have a scheduled tweet to go out today about this, um, is the idea that like, show us more in context. You know, like material design, like, I don't wanna go to material design's website and just see the card. Show me the card on Google Maps. Show me the card on, implemented on the search page. Show me the card, like show me how it exists in context. So I go like, oh, that's how I use it. And just yesterday, I think last night I saw like material design just launched a YouTube channel where the material design team teaches you how to use the, the stuff and they give lots of examples and they show you, here's how you could use it. Here's some a bunch of different ways. And no design system does that. You know, I, I shouldn't say no, but like very few design systems do that. They just give you, here are the parts, good luck. You know, it's like, it's like having, you know, the Ikea catalog and it's just the page of, of like, uh, of the, it's not ingredients of all the parts, right? It's just that page, but you don't get the steps. You don't get to see what it looks like put together. It's just like, well, you have 10 wood screws and you're like, well, what do I do with this? What am I supposed to do with these things? And you just don't get the picture at all. So it's like, show more pictures. Like we need to see more examples of things. And so I wish that design system sites, reference sites in particular, made a bigger deal of examples and made a bigger deal of like, and here's like a boilerplate that you can download of like, you know, here is us using material design to build a shopping experience. Awesome, because then I can download it and I can modify it. I can, I can use it out of the box if I wanted to. Now, like I, I wouldn't be encouraged to do that because you would have a vanilla thing that didn't relate to your organization, but give me a starting point that I can edit as opposed to a blank slate and a bunch of, of parts, you know? And it's like, well, I don't know what to do with these things. Show me, give me an example. I'm, I'm working on, I've been working on an article that I like, I've been working on for six months that I, I just haven't published yet um, about like there's six different learning modes that I think people have, you know, everything from, you know, knowledge transfer where like someone teaches you something actively to like mentorship where you kind of like learn something passively. And one of the big things is, is examples. Like people learn well from examples by saying like, oh, like that. Okay. Yeah, I get that. You know, and, and we, design systems don't do that well in our industry yet. We don't have, you know, we don't have good examples of, of examples of how to do that. <laughs> I wish that more reference sites, um, I wish that they prioritized more, like, here's how you use this stuff rather than here's all the stuff, you know. And, and again, I, I don't chalk that up to, um, to malice. I don't chalk that up to like, you know, somebody shirking the responsibility. I chalk that up to like, you know, ignorance, like we're, we're just not that far along yet as an industry to know that that's what we need. And I think that that'll be the next, I hope that that's going to be the, the next wave that we see of design systems is a bunch of reference sites and a bunch of people going like, all right, let me show you how I use this thing. Um, and, and that's what we try to do in our courses and in our workshops and all that stuff is like, show people like, let's show you how to use it. And that's how we teach teams to use design systems. Even when we are hired to make the whole design system, we host internal workshops to go like, let's do a bunch of lunch and learns, or let's do, you know, a road show and where we go around to all the, all the different departments and go like, let us show you how we build your interface with this design system, you know, and here's a bunch of examples and some, some out of the box stuff that you can use. 
So I think that if you just, just keep using that Ikea analogy and you'll get there because that gave me the perfect picture. Like what a nightmare. That's like, that's like seriously would be a nightmare scenario of just seeing all the parts, <laughs> no yeah, instructions. Exactly. Well, you know, or same thing with, with cooking, right? It's like, here's all the ingredients, like parsley and onions and salt and, you know, raw chicken. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, what, what, like, I think I could figure out what to do with that, but I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to, is it, does it go in the oven or is it a stovetop thing? Like, right. do I grill it or does the yeah. parsley go on before or after? Like, you know, all those questions, just seeing the raw ingredients is like, I could maybe figure out what to do with that, but there's no context with it. Yeah. And the recipe. So, um, so I think, I mean, I'll just go ahead and say it. Like, I think OUX can help with that. Like I definitely like helping get those things in context and get them rooted, like getting these things rooted in, in a mental model, in an actual, like a business model, like a business system model. Like I, I use those terms interchangeably, hopefully the mental model and the business, like the things that are valuable to the user and the things that are valuable to valuable to the business are hopefully the same things. Um, but just like an example. So if we go back to the Nike example, like if we think of the designer and we think of like, let's take a designer mini card. So it's all it is, is it's avatar and name. That's all we have on there. Like a byline, a byline card, if you will. So that byline card might go straight onto an article detail page. And it might look a certain way on the article detail page, but then what if it is inside the product card? So now you have a mini card inside a product card. So how do you again show that, show that, okay, I have a designer, this, this little mini card represents a designer object and I want it to be consistent as much as possible, consistent, but like maybe if it's within the card, you know, it has a light border around it to distinguish it a little bit more. But when it's over here, we drop the border completely to make it kind of melt into the detail page, if you will. So like, I don't know another way to do that other than rooting it back down to what is the thing that's being represented here actually, instead of just saying like, here's a mini card. No, this is a designer mini card. Um, and then showing it in those different scenarios. So, I mean, I guess to, to end this, I know we only, we only have a few minutes left. Um, so we'll, we'll end it on this um, and, and maybe, and it's okay if you want to punt on this and we can like talk about it more, but like knowing sort of for all the OUXers out there, there's going to be a lot of people that are into OUX listening to this and also into design systems. I think it's definitely like the same personality type, like, <laughs> right. but design systems are getting, you know, you guys are way ahead of us. You are more in mainstream, more companies are realizing this is something that we need. And, and we're sort of OUXers or these little kind of upstarts, um, you know, in a way. So what would your, I guess, what would your advice be? Like, how do we sort of like, how could we start integrating into design systems more in a way, sort of like ride the coattails, um, what would you, what would you, what would you, how, what advice would you give to me and everybody that's practicing object-oriented UX? Uh, I'll start broadly. And then this is probably not something that anybody doesn't know here, but I'll, I'll say it to articulate it. The, the broad version is like, be helpful, mm -hmm. right? Like the people who are making design systems need help. That's the point of needing, that's the point of needing the design system is like, they need help. They are spending too much time, you know, people on product teams, designers and engineers and product managers are spending too much time doing work that is meaningless, you know, or maybe not meaningless, but less meaningful than they should be. Um, and they need efficiencies and they need rules and they need help, you know? So like the thing that I, that I always say to teams is like, how can you be helpful? You know, and, and a lot of that ties to customer value, right? A lot of that goes like all the way through to like, how does the end user use this? And then what do we need to be able to make that gracefully to them? Um, and so I think that for, for OUXers, it's like, it's the same, the same thing as, as anyone else on the team, which is like, how can you be helpful? Can you organize stuff for everyone? Like, can you document stuff for everyone? Can you, can you be the one providing the examples? You know, can you go like, oh, I'll, I'll compile a bunch of things. Can you make some demos? Can you say, here's how it should be used? Could you do make videos? Could you do, you know, like though all of those things are helpful to people. We don't have, as design system people, we don't have those resources readily available because usually the way that it works in an organization is a design system is a separate effort that needs new headcount and new budget and new buy-in and new this and new that. Like all of that stuff is just not, it's like, well, sometimes we don't have that, you know? And so, so the resources are limited. So at, for a UXer, like, 
how, what do your designers need? What do your engineers need? And, and can you provide that for them? Like, maybe they just need somebody to tell them what to do sometimes. Like, maybe they just need somebody to be like, don't worry about those decisions. I'll make those for you. Well, great. For some designers and engineers, they would hate that. So instead, it's the other way around. Like, how about you make the decisions and you outsource all the crap to me? I'll do all that stuff too. And I think that's the kind of stuff that helps teams really do the work that they're responsible for. Um, and so be helpful, you know, in any way that you can, you know, hopefully it's official ways that are officially sanctioned and officially documented and part of the canon, but sometimes it's under the radar stuff. And sometimes it's like guerrilla warfare kind of stuff too. But I think that that's the thing that I wish more people did on, on teams. And I mean, helping with the context. I mean, you were, you were saying that, like helping, like figure out, like maybe you have a design system that nobody's using. How can you start creating those examples and start bringing sure. it back to a conceptual model? Um, Dan, thank you so much. This was an awesome conversation. I'm going to definitely bother you again in like six to eight months to come back on because we got through about half of my questions. Um, so thanks again. Have an awesome rest of your day. And we will, we will link to all the things. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is great. I'm totally eager to do a part two. Awesome. All right. Have a great day. Enjoy the beach. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit objectorientux.com slash podcast for show notes. Our soundtrack is Fighter by Ruby Bell, courtesy of Sugaroo Records. Happy OUXing! <laughs>